Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Everybody and welcome to the Writers on Film podcast. My name's John Bleasdale. I'm a writer and critic on film. And today I'm going to be talking to David Hughes, who started off as a journalist with Empire Magazine. He now writes screenplays. And somewhere in between that, he wrote some brilliant books, one on Stanley Kubrick, another on David Lynch, uh, one on the greatest science fiction movies never made, and another called Tales from Development Hell, again, about films that didn't quite make it to the big screen a really fascinating topic and we're going to cover all of those in the conversation and i hope you enjoy it the weird thing is that although the the kubrick book came first basically i had always wanted to do a book of of films that never got made and i think i probably would be very interested in a book of uh, buildings that never got built, you know, and right. and sort of this. I, I've always been kind of interested in that sort of Elseworlds kind of kind of thing. So the the idea of doing a film book like that seemed to be just nobody else had done it, and I really wanted to read one, so I ended up having having to write it. But I actually pitched a book about Kubrick films that had never been made because obviously you know he had some famous things, the Aryan Papers and Napoleon, and you know there'd been a few things that he'd 
never got around to actually putting together. And instead, the publisher came back and said, well, actually, we want a book about Kubrick and all the films he did make. And I, I got to shove a section at the back about films that he didn't make. But it was um, but it was through that sort of desire, I think, to, to make that book that I then did The Greatest Sci-Fi Movies Never Made, which was the precursor to Tales from Development Hell. And it was sci-fi in nature, I think, because perhaps because the publisher was tight in books and their, you know, sci-fi was... And, and also because I, I don't think horror was really, uh, you know, having quite the moment that it's had in the past kind of 20 years, really, at, at that point, and sci-fi seemed a bit more of a rich vein to, to mine. But I did manage to include, within the, the, the greatest sci-fi movies, I did manage to include sort of superhero movies and things that were slight, you know, wouldn't necessarily be 100% on topic. And then Tales from Development Hell was really... The, the next edition of, of that book, but encompassed more than just sort of science fiction. I mean, not that it was, you know, crammed with Westerns that never got made or whatever. There was still a bias towards the genre film. Well, I mean, Westerns are genre films, but, but you know what I mean? There were some yeah. sort of mainstream films in there as well. But the weird thing is, after I made uh, the first edition of Greatest Sci-Fi Movies Never Made, for, for whatever reason, quite a few of them actually ended up getting made, for better or worse. So you got the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy movie, you got the Thunderbirds movie, you know, a lot of the a lot of the the sort of sequels reboots and and what have you that that I put in the first book actually kind of came out whereas that hadn't really happened with tales from development hell sadly in some cases it's kind of uh, be careful what you wish for isn't it the, there's an element of you know in your imagination a hitchhiker guide hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy movie would be oh it's going to be amazing and then in reality it's a little bit well, it's okay <laughs> Yeah, but it, it's yeah. Landed, landed with a comprehensive. Uh. Yeah, and and you know some of the things they kind of got right, and you could see it, it's like I think that that's what's that that's what's so interesting in some ways about the uh, the the films that the books covered is that they are uh, you know the best possible version of. I Am Legend, for instance, is certainly not the one that got made, although, you know, there's sort of two thirds of it are, are, are pretty good. But then it, it, it kind of falls to pieces very quickly in, in the third act, unfortunately. But is the best version of that movie the unmade Ridley Scott Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, which was a little bit closer to perhaps what the Omega Man was as an adaptation of that story? And, you know, I guess we'll, we'll never know. But it's just it's so exciting to think about films like Paul Verhoeven's Crusade and uh, Smoke and Mirrors the the kind of Sean Connery and male lead going to be oh Michael Douglas Catherine Zeta Jones in a kind of nineteenth century magical mystery set in the in in the Middle East which never got made in any way I mean at least you can say well Kingdom of Heaven had a sort of a stab at doing the Crusades you know. But um, but smoke and mirrors did seem to be the the big one that got away for me. Oh, would would you say that's the that is there one of the films that if you could if you could had a magic ticket and you could go and see any of the unmade movies, which one would you choose? I don't know. I'm such a. I know they did make I Am Legend, but I'm such a fan of that of that film. I think of all of them, actually, it's not. Pro, even though, yeah, of course, I would love to see for Verhoeven to have made Crusade after Total Recall, which is when it should have been made when when Schwarzenegger was the right age and everything. And I would love to have seen Smoke and Mirrors. But d would any of those films really have the, you know, do I need any of those films to really exist in, in this universe? I don't think I do. But there's one, but the one that I would have absolutely loved to have seen was Darren Aronofsky's Batman Year One, mm. because that was so totally different to anything 
that I mean, doing it as a as a seven a dark seventies. You know, it's it's so weird that 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 you know the Joker kind of ended up doing this in a way, doing that taxi driver version. But let's say perhaps without the artistry of of perhaps what Aronofsky would have would have brought to it. And so I think that was one of the great missed opportunities. But then, you know, you could also argue, does the world need any more Batman films? Well, well maybe we'll see with, with Michael Reeves, the Batman coming up. Um, right, but yeah. that was that was pretty interesting. I mean, the idea that Bruce Wayne didn't, you know, that the, the guy who became Batman in, in Darren Aronofsky's year one didn't know that he was uh, a Wayne. He, he was raised poor... Uh, worked in the garage in the basement of of a guy called Al, you know, who became right. his Alfred kind of thing. Lived across the street from a, from a, a sex worker who would obviously become Selena Kyle, and and it's just it was so beautiful the way that the things knitted together, and you can see so much of the kind of DNA of that in the Joker. But it would have been done in in the nineties, and and just wow, what a fantastic what a fantastic script that was. You know, it, it had the, some of the DNA of of the Frank Miller comic year one because Aronofsky and Miller wrote it together but it was kind of its own thing and it had this kind of muscle car Batmobile that was like a souped up Ford Mustang or Dodge Challenger or something like that but from the 70s you know oh man yeah that's the one that's the one because I knew you were going to ask me that question because they always do (laughs) (laughs) I know that's brilliant I was thinking the other day of one of the films that I would have liked to have seen and and the weird thing is you because Hollywood is such a cannibalistic sort of thing that it, it will it will recycle an idea even if one film doesn't get made and it'll sort of remake it something else the way Ridley Scott sort of turns all his Dune preparation into Blade Runner. Terence Malick wrote a script for Dirty Harry and I just think, oh, a, Mal- a Malick Dirty Harry would be good. But then they took the, the main idea of his script, which was basically Harry Callahan going against the vigilante cops and they made it into Magnum Force anyway. So you kind of have this sort of Terence Malick version of Dirty Harry in existence. It's just you don't know. You know, it's just, it, it's been hidden by the la- layers that have accre- accrued, accrued? Yeah. On top of it. What about... Yeah, it was just on that point, actually. Sorry, yeah, I, would, I, I just just wanted to say, it was really interesting that Total Recall 2, which you, uh, uh, not one of the the sort of the, the great unproduced movie stories, but just kind of um, d- to your point, point 100% they were going to do a total recall sequel that happened to be based on the story the minority report from Philip K Dick and the idea was the precogs from minority report had been kind of established they would be the sort of the martian you know there, there were there was all of those there were all of those elements and i think what happened is gary goldman who'd written total recall he i mean he explained this to me at length but it was it was kind of 20 years ago now so i'm, I'm a little bit rusty on some of the details but he basically had suggested that the Minority Report would be an excellent basis for where the, the Arnold Schwarzenegger character gets accused of a crime that he hasn't yet committed because the precogs, you know, so it's basically always, always kind of bundled up into a Total Recall sequel. And of course, it advanced quite far um, and Total Recall was like a, a big hit. So, but then it actually sort of evolved back into a standalone Minority Report film. And so none of that stuff kind of got wasted. And when I look back at the, at the Planet of the Apes film, that never got made. I do see strands of of them in. Um, I mean, even going back to 1988, when Adam Rifkin, he of uh, Mouse Hunt fame, when he wrote a Planet of the Apes script, when Fox was first considering rebooting. 
Planet of the Apes, 1988. You know, it's a long way before Tim Burton got around to doing his kind of reimagining. And he basically come up with the idea of ditching all of the Planet of the Apes sequels, which I thought personally was a bit rude because I really like the Planet of the Apes sequels. You know, each <laughs> each has has its merits, even though none of them are, are the towering as towering as, as the original. And what he did is he said, well, what if we ignore all the sequels? Because what people really remember about Planet of the Apes is that, you know, there are apes, Charlton Heston and the Statue of Liberty at the end. You know, what if we forget all those sequels and just kind of do a sequel to the original 1968 Planet of the Apes and then you can sort of bring that back and that's kind of what he did and then I thought oh my god that's what they've done with like Halloween and it took a long time for Hollywood to realise that they could actually re- and Terminator you know they could actually reboot these things and ignore whichever sequels are inconveniently bad or unsuccessful and do whatever the hell you like you know it's so weird that we were so rigid with the rules kind of 20-30 years ago but at the same time it's sort of at that point you think well where, where would it stop would you sort of do I, I wrote a satirical article once called Moonraker 2 you know announcing the news of uh, they're going to make a sequel to Moonraker that'll never work you know <laughs> sort of inserting sequels to Bond films in between Bond films because they because yeah. they run out of titles they run out of good titles so let's do a Thunderball two instead of <laughs> Spectre or something. But you know, you can you can kind of see it, and, and one of the things I think is quite exciting is that that when you're in the the era that's the sort of the post postmodern era where new treatments of original of of previous ideas have already sort of been done. Now what you're doing is kind of and and at the most cynical end of that, you can see the kind of the the mini Stay Puffed men in the in the new Ghostbusters, which are, right. are clearly everybody's trying to make minions you know because because the minions were so successful so you know those kind of hideous sort of cynical things but you can sort of ignore those and and say well then you know that's not for me so i'm not too worried about about you know that kind of kind of silliness you know you don't embrace the cynicism but then there are other times when it's like you literally you've had like seven bad sequels but now here's a really good one and and you sort of all is forgiven and you don't mind i mean i had kind of high hopes when i read chris rock was doing a saw movie or something i was like yeah you know bring it on because because it's all good you know whatever you want to do they did six uh maybe five sequels to wrong turn and then the latest one which has got the same title as the original sort of gets it right and in a really interesting and exciting way i thought that that turns the whole sort of idea on its head that it's not the savages in the backwards it's actually they, they are actually quite civilized and we are the savage you know i mean it's cannibal holocaust you know. dale, dale and tucker uh, right evil, sort of. yes yeah yeah exactly so it's kind Kind of, um, I think it's a kind of an exciting and time to to kind of be still a fan of of cinema, but at the same time you do have to kind of take the rough with the smooth. You know, you have to take the the oceans eight with the with uh, what's a what's an interesting another interesting reboot that's been done recently. I, I mean, you know, I, it's such a a big there's such a big gulf between uh, Batman and Robin and Batman Begins that when that when Batman Begins came out it was like so incredibly uh, exciting it reminded me of when Batman came out in 1989 and you didn't want to sort of piss all over the the you know Adam West and Burt Ward but it was so profoundly different and new it was like super exciting and then after a while you kind of get bored with those films as well and then by the time the Dark Justice or whatever the hell that rubbish that, that, that is called comes along, um, Dawn of Justice and, and the, you know, the Dark Batman. And you're just like, nah, you know, I, I'm sort of, 
I'm, I'm tired of that now. And now I want to be doing the more colorful sort of Marvel thing. And then Marvel goes dark and kills off literally 50% of its IP in one film, which is still, I think, the most amazing thing that's ever happened in cinema. I was in so cinema, disappointed you know? when I found out that there was a second film. I, I went to see that with my daughter and I, I thought, that is such a good ending. And she went, oh, yeah, there's a part two. And I was like, what? I was so like, oh, no. Oi, Feige, no. Yeah, it is an amazing thing. I mean, imagine if, if the film that brought all the Disney princesses together killed off half of them and then made you wait a year for the... I mean, even the, the fact that they did it, we know that in the death of Superman comics that Superman's going to come back at some point. But it's just such an amazing thing to do in a movie where there's so much at stake. If, if, you, if you fuck it up in a comic, it's not that expensive to put it right again and you can just sort of do it, you know, because obviously the illustrations cost more or less the same no matter how big the production value. But when you do that in a movie, it's you know massive kind of risk to take and it's so, so that has been an amazing thing to witness as well so anyway we're getting off the topic of films that didn't get made <laughs> no no that we don't have to stick to any given topic i'm interested about this idea of sort of trying to the, the, the sort of evolution of the sequel really because you go back to we were talking on twitter the other day about jaws 2 and that's you know i watched rewatched that recently it's not that bad you know it's not it's it's not as good as Jaws by a long stretch, but it's got a decent poster. It's got a great tagline, and it's got Roy Scheider, the who's the other guy in it, the guy who plays the mayor, is it Murray Hamilton? But in, in the nineteen eighties, the the idea of a sequel was considered really naff, and they were gonna you know you, you're gonna take a bath on it, so you're gonna make it cheaper because you're never gonna make the same amount of money. Mm. You know you're gonna, always gonna make less. Nowadays, it's the opposite, where the sequels seem to be gaining more and more, and frequently even if they're inferior in quality they still make a bucket load of bucket load of cash yeah um, and i think i think what really drove that was that was the international market became the tail that wagged the dog obviously and then what happens is you know recognition is is so important and it's also that i mean this is a bit of an old kind of uh, an old idea now but the idea that if you'd missed the first one on um, its theatrical release but you'd caught up with it on home video which is obviously you know kind of a, a new thing that came through that really sort of exploded in the 80s and then obviously you know it had the, the kind of the dvd revolution in the in the late 90s the, the idea being that now there were so many more people that were aware of this thing that the sequel was going to be bigger because more people would want to see that theatrically which whereas even through the kind of the first run of sort of star trek movies that didn't really happen you'd have a, an anomaly like a star trek 4 or something that would suddenly make some money and then the next one would kind of flop again and you could never really guarantee that that it was they were going to get bigger as they went along but the big ones certainly do seem to um to follow that pattern pretty well so um there was also sort of the, the there was a trend and i'm not sure if this is kind of stopped but there was a trend of making two sequels at the same time i think there's back to the future was the first that did that where you had two and yeah. three made back to back or or more or less at the same time and then you had lord of the rings of course you had the matrix films that were made at the same time uh, i think the pirates of the caribbean filmed the two sequels more or less simultaneously but i'm not sure if that doesn't seem to be happening and in fact the latest star wars trilogy that's just come out from the recent thing that jj abrams came out with seemed like oh we hadn't bothered writing a story you know we didn't i mean what the hell were they thinking i mean yeah that, that was that's almost it's almost it kind of gladdens my heart in a way because it makes me think oh well good if if you guys are this sort of <laughs> 
incompetent, then there's hope for me yet. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a good good way to look at it. I, I think it's, uh, for me, that was like, you know, I understand that you could sort of go into something like Lost and not necessarily know how you were going to get out. But when Marvel's MCU has been built in the way that it was, even though there were a few sort of, you know, missteps and a couple of things that, that you know, withered on the vine, generally speaking, that thing is a, is a juggernaut that kind of kept going. I don't think you can, you really have an excuse not to map it out properly. And that, that did make me feel like, what, what do they, what, if you're not going to do it for Star Wars, do you know what I mean? What, yeah, are, what yeah. are you going to do that for? And Star Trek kind of thing went a little bit, that way as well it was a bit of a, a damp squib at the end of it whereas the reboot itself seemed to be phenomenally well thought out and then where it went from there just was not not a good place you know it reminds me of charles dickens who used to write his novels and his beginnings are always great because he's so excited but they used to overlap he would get hired to write okay i'm due another novel so he'd be starting tale of two cities before he finished Oliver Twist. And so the end of <laughs> Oliver Twist will be a bit like, yeah, and they all get happy ever after. And then, because I'm, I'm more excited about this other project. And right. J.J. Abrams feels a little bit like that, that he's like, uh, Star Trek now. Oh, no, Star Wars. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good that's a good analogy. I, I, I feel like that there are filmmakers who d- wouldn't necessarily be that sort of, you know, mercurial with, you know, somebody like, uh, a, you know, Christopher Nolan or Christopher McQuarrie would would sort of say no i'm going to do this and i'm going to do it properly and then we'll we'll kind of see how you know see how that works out and not get distracted by sort of you know other other projects or spread themselves too thin kind of thing but um yeah but i mean a, a treatment for three movies we're talking about 10 a4 pages we're not talking about you know someone yeah. who has to have every shot yeah no absolutely but just yeah. know where know where your where your destination is um one of the things i was going to say actually to pick up what you were saying about uh, people kind of getting attached to things and it reminded me of that the kind of period when which which i think has been happening a little more in television now where you can't sort of do uh, a, a big thing unless you've got like a ryan murphy or a david benioff or you know it's got somebody who's got some clout to be the kind of showrunner and it's it's why you see these kind of superstar showrunners now but there was a period when film studios were kind of just keen to sort of attach somebody who who would at least give them like something this is even before the cast come on board they would want to attach like a big executive producer or something and it's how you ended up with you know James Cameron's Planet of the Apes or Oliver Stone's Planet of the Apes or something like that and it was literally just a somebody who's going to take a million dollars to to just put their name on something so that the studio can kind of kick it along the road a little bit and I haven't actually done the analysis of whether any of those projects kind of ended up in a, in a good place because of a big sort of, you know, heavyweight that came on board, because we kind of know what happened with James Cameron's Spider-Man, that it was kind of a really exciting and interesting potential combination of actor and, you know, if it had been like Leonardo DiCaprio or something and, you know, James Cameron doing that, those kind of films that never got made which i also cover in the in the course of the books i kind of never really went beyond the sort of the treatment stage but to me it's exciting just the fact that those people were involved in those projects and you know john borman doing lord of the rings or ridley scott doing i am legend as i mentioned before or ridley scott doing the the hot zone with robert redford and and jodie foster and i I just i can't believe that i was the only guy doing books about films that never got made but i guess i just carved (laughs) out a niche and, and that's the way it happened 
and and luckily for me because i had no sort of experience of, of really writing books each because they were sort of broken into chapters which which books are handily i discovered <laughs> all i had to do was really write like 12 or 13 really long articles <laughs> and i had a book so it was, it was not That's not that difficult to transition from from writing articles for empire and stuff you know so you started writing for empire uh, before you 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 went over to well i mean you do i i assume you're doing both basically well right? yeah i mean i did i i'd been writing for empire for 10 years by the time i got the first book out the out the gate right. and i've been writing proposals for probably a, six or, or so years and basically what were, some of your, what were some of your best proposals that never got made that be, oh that, gosh you yeah, could do the, a book about that <laughs> <laughs> you know what i i really couldn't I, I couldn't remember the only one i could remember was was the kubrick the unproduced kubrick films because that's the one that led to the one that 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 did get made so i I couldn't remember what the other ones were, but yeah, I mean, they probably weren't very good. And, and and sometimes I would put together a proposal for a book and then I'd find that somebody else was actually working on it. And I'd, I'd think, oh, thank God, because now I don't have to write the damn thing. You know, like I, I think I, I, I tried to buy a book. I didn't really want a book about Kubrick himself because I had that book. I had a biography. What I wanted was like a book about Kubrick and his films, you know, like the same way that you might do. Oh, well, Tom Schoen did the the um, Christopher Nolan book that wasn't really about Christopher Nolan's life because that's not what Christopher Nolan was interested in. And I kind of knew about Kubrick the person, but I was much more interested in learning about his films. And sort of in a in a similar vein, I didn't think there was much biographical juice in David Lynch's backstory, which was the book I worked on after right. after the, the Kubrick one. They sort of and, and then and, and then I did kind of the greatest sci-fi movies never made in between. But then I. Think I think the next project was Virgin, who were publishing the complete range, and they came to me and said, do you want to do Cronenberg or Scorsese? And I thought, oh, God, that's a really tough choice, because I probably find more personal interest in Cronenberg's oeuvre at that point. But Scorsese, how could you, you know, resist doing a book about Scorsese if somebody asked you? And then I think it was my wife who said to me, uh, when are you going to like stop writing films about other people and start writing films like of your own? And I suddenly thought, oh my God, I've been wasting my life writing books about other people. <laughs> I should be writing screenplays. And that's literally how I transitioned to writing scripts, which is kind of what I've been doing instead of writing books these past 20 years or so. So right. that's kind of what so I basically transitioned from writing articles for, for, for Empire with no like qualifications beyond the fact that I was the first guy to phone in when episode uh, when issue one came out and say, um, hello, can I write for you? Um, <laughs> and that's literally how I got that job and I'm still there. That's so. how they still hire, apparently. That's exactly the same thing. You just have to phone up. There's, you Amazing. have to find the phone number. That's the, right. that's the only <laughs> if you the pass qualification. That test. Exactly. But it was literally, I mean, the, 1989, they published issue one and I think it was like the first couple of issues were bi-monthly and I literally called I phoned the office you know with no qualifications whatsoever and said oh how do I get to like write reviews for you they said well have you seen anything we haven't and I said well no but I will. And then I'll, and then they said, right, okay, we'll do that and then call back. And so I, I basically flew to Paris that weekend because they used to release films in Paris a lot. You know, they, they would get an early release. This is right. literally 1989. So you could go and see the, um, you'd look in the little Paris matchbook, you know, and it would say version originale. And you'd know that you, you, if you don't speak French, you can still kind of watch the film. And I saw like a whole bunch of, I spent the whole weekend on the Champs-Élysées basically watching, for, going from one cinema to another. 
came back on Monday with a pencil and said, right, I've seen this, this, this and this. And they say, right, we'll have the fly to get us, you know, 500 words by Monday or whatever and 40 quid. And I was off to the races and, and, that, and that was it. And then because Empire was so new, once you write for Empire magazine, you could basically get in anywhere because it was like the golden ticket to you, you know your shit about movies, at right. least, you know, mainstream films. I wasn't doing like Kaye du Cinema or Sight and Sound and, and never have because I'm, you know, I'm not smart enough for, for that for that type of thing. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm over here analysing, you know, yeah, Kubrick yeah. and Lynch. Uh, uh, I, I, I do I do sight and sound, David. Oh, you're, yes, you're exactly. Fine. I, I, I leave that fine. to the to the proper writers, and I and I do you know uh, which is the second best film in the MCU. So you do the fun <laughs> stuff. <laughs> well, you know the thing is, I I do I, I do get to do kind of what I like, and and what I like for for the past sort of decade or so has really been uh, writing scripts, you know, mm. for, for 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 hire and and. You know, my my dream job is basically for someone to give me a book and say, you know, come back in six weeks with a with a script based on on this book and sort of breaking it down and and doing that because I think I think maybe it comes out of that purity of the blueprint for a film that you never actually saw and and wasn't at the mercy of of, of all of the myriad problems that that films face when they're actually be, being made the script for that unmade you know Batman year one movie is so perfect that the film itself couldn't possibly kind of kind of hold up to it in a way and and in the same way do it getting to write the first yeah, I mean, I wrote the first draft of Escape from Pretoria. I met right. the guy who um, escaped from Pretoria and breaking the book, uh, being the first person to take the memoir and, and turning it into the, the, a film script is always kind of like such an exciting part of the process. And I, and I right. kind of much prefer that to the, end, to the end game, which is the here's a script we're just about to go into production with, but it needs like final polish or something. And then there's only so much you can do in the... I mean, in fact, I, I once got asked to rewrite a film that had already been shot which was the the Paul Schrader version of The Exorcist what became The Dominion oh, really? and they yeah and they it was Friday afternoon I got called into Morgan Creek and they said we've got a um, we've got Rennie Harlan and he's going to be coming in like next month to shoot like the other bits of the film because we didn't like it so can you write all those bits but we can't really change any of the bits that he's already done so that Paul Schrader's done so you're going to have to kind of so like what a fascinating that's project like a, that would a, be a writer's version of saw yeah. I mean, you're sort of stuck in the room yeah. there's an yeah. escape room absolutely of, uh... absolutely and obviously you can cut stuff but you can't really reshoot stuff that's already been shot because they've only got a certain amount of budget for new stuff and they want that stuff to be sort of scary special effects so um, but they also wanted it to link to the original exorcist in a way that the oh so that, yeah, that was a did, that did, was it, a, a, did it end up did your work end up going into the finished project? no it, it didn't and, and but you know i had great meetings about it and you know got got paid for the work that i did but what was fascinating about it is that i'd written the, the thing that they'd read of mine was actually like a um it was a sort of a comedy about two guys who have to drive the world's most expensive car across america in 24 hours and they read that and they said oh yeah we think you'd be good to do the exorcist prequel I'm like what? How, how does that work and then at the end of the meeting when i sort of couldn't kind of you know 
fuck it up anymore, basically. I just said, do you mind if, can I just ask, why would you bring me in for this? And they said, oh, you can write. Right, right. Uh, and that's it. That's what they care about. They, they're not, you, for all that the reputation is, oh, they want to put you in a pigeonhole or whatever. Actually, they just want, like, uh, that, was a, that was a good thing, what I wrote then. It would look terrible now if I look back on it. But back then it was kind of, it was okay. And lots of people, you know, I got lots of kind of meetings out of it, but some bizarre stuff comes out of it and you never know what's going to suddenly take off. I remember talking to a literary agent once who was who was letting me down very gently from a rejection and he said everybody says you have to have all these rejections and there's so many manuscripts are sent and we can only you know and all the rest of it but of all those manuscripts that are sent one percent are are good enough and the rest are just like there's a there's a sh you know continental shelf mm -hmm. of, of quality and he sort of said you're in that one percent you know, you're just not, for me, you're not there, but you're in that 1%. And it was kind of like, it, it sort of gives you gives you hope. Yes, there are yeah. millions of people out there writing. Luckily, most of them are not that good. <laughs> you know? And it's just like, even the most basic stuff. Yeah, like, it is amazing. I mean, I think one of the one of the introductions to or the introduction to to one of my books basically says this is kind of how how the math works. It's that like of of one percent um, of, of all the scripts that get started, only one percent get finished. Of all the scripts that get finished, only one percent is is ever read by somebody with with any kind of you know ability to do anything with it. You know, and it's probably much less than one percent actually. But and of all the scripts that get read by somebody, only one percent is going to get financed or whatever. And and so every script that gets made is basically a million to one shot. So if you've, I mean, I've you know I had one feature made out of the maybe thirteen to fifteen that I've kind of written, most of which have, have sold or been optioned at one point or another. And obviously it's different if it's if they're coming to you with a with a book and saying, you know, here you go, adapt this kind of thing. But, but you know, the, so the numbers are massively against you in every way. But I do see that that's starting, that the, the, the gatekeeping is starting to, to go away now and, and that social media has, has opened up such an amazing, um, uh, you know, method for talent to out that there's just no way that talent will will go undiscovered in the next kind of, for the next generation because it's... It, you, you can get noticed very, very quickly. And, and you know, Hollywood, of course, has always jumped on whatever looks like the hot shit of that particular day kind of thing. So it's just that it's all, the churn is so much faster now. But when you get somebody who comes in and says, hey, here's a moribund franchise that you've got knocking around Lionsgate or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. um, I've got an idea to, to juice it. They're going to say, well, sure, you know, we'll give it, we'll give it a punt because it really costs nothing to, for, for them to spend that money developing another script. I mean, I remember how shocked me and my, my co-writer were when we found out that we weren't the only people working on this particular idea for this director. And then I look back now and I'm, I marvel at my own naivete because I wrote bloody books about screenwriters who'd been asked to, to you know, when they were figuring out what to do with Batman, they like asked so many different people. It wasn't just Aaron Aronofsky. It was, it was, or whoever was hot at Sundance that week, they would say, what's your take? You know, and obviously lots of people have meetings about projects and, and they're always these mad kind of ideas. To be honest, one of the reasons why I haven't really done a full third edition of Tales from Development Hell, although I did sort of, you know, refresh the, um, the, the book to, and, and, and did a second edition, is that I haven't really fallen in love with any of the stories 
of films that haven't got made to the point where you could write like a really big juicy mm. chapter about it because even in the case of um at the mountains of madness by um, uh, Guillermo del Toro, you know, his adaptation of the, of the classic H.P. Lovecraft story. I feel that that story has been out there now because of podcasts and, and, you know, interviews and what have you. It feels like I would really just be compiling you know, rather than right. doing the the sort of the raw research. And I feel that he's kind of told that story. So maybe I'll stumble on a couple of stories that, that will make me feel like I really want to dig into it and get enough material to do like another book. But then again, hopefully script or two will will come along in the meantime. And, and obviously now you've covered this a little bit with, uh, with what you were talking about with Tom, but you really have to be sure now that you've got like a shit hot idea before anybody will will actually put it into print. And, and so the lavishness of, of the of the books that are coming out for for filmmakers now will that will put like a you know 30 pound plus price tag there are very few directors in in uh, who are going to be worthy of that and the amount that you're going to get paid for it is not really enough to live on so you're having to do these things as as labors of love around other projects and when you've got a commitment to a publisher you just you you can't suddenly go off and write a film script for for you know three months or whatever you know so i, I haven't really found anything that that, that i've wanted to do that was new and besides I kind of like my I kind of like my niche you know doing the, mm. the so I may just endlessly refresh and update those because <laughs> I, I find those exciting so I mean Crusade you know, recently the rights to Crusade got got optioned or got bought from Arnold Schwarzenegger who, who had, uh, had got in a settlement deal or had picked them up at the fire sale the the, the Carolco fire sale and had sort of hung on to those rights over all those years and now someone else owns it and who knows they may they may revive it and and bring it back but th- there's always kind of life in in some of those long dead projects as as we've seen from just some of the content that's that's come out over the past uh, 20 or so years well i i, I want to come back to that so I'll let, put, let's put a pin in that in a, for a second but one one question i i wanted to ask was after doing tales from development hell which is full of stories of writers being, you know, kind of, excuse my French, shafted. What what then made you think, follow your wife's advice and go, I want to be that guy. I want to, you know, <laughs> I want to have the bottom bunk of the prison cell, please. <laughs> well, it's because what I really didn't want to do was direct. <laughs> so I, I, I think that was the kind of the natural way to, to sort of make films and always be able to like blame the other guy. And, you know, my, my, my old co- Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary writer that I used to collaborate on on, on some 
of my projects with, he said, oh, that's because you haven't written anything that you're so in love with, you couldn't bear anybody else to direct it. And I was like, no, it's pretty much that my visual sense kind of ends on the page and, and doesn't necessarily translate to the stage. You know, no, I, I couldn't imagine kind of doing that. And and I think also, you know, writing those those blueprints, you, you've got a lot more freedom to kind of, I, I write quite fast, generally speaking. And and I, I've got a lot, you know, there's a lot more stuff that I can produce in a, in a shorter amount of time. And also kind of like, I've always worked to order. I mean, my, my day job is kind of running a, a marketing agency for films that, that I've, I've been doing that for 30 years now as well. And, and my own company has been going for 15 years as of, as of April. So basically, you know, making trailers and TV ads and promos and, and digital assets and posters and what have you for films is kind of one wearing sort of one hat and then I guess that because I was always working with somebody else's raw materials when I was making trailers you're always given like a film or whatever or if I was doing an article it was about somebody else this was kind of my way screenwriting was kind of my way to be build the story from scratch or if it wasn't built from scratch then to take a to take a book or or, you know in some of the best cases somebody else's idea that they would Mm. kind of pitch to me and and I would say great I'll go away and do the first draft of that idea you know Mm. if if someone comes up with and yes there were a lot of to come back to your question there were a lot of horror stories in that book but all of those horror stories tended to be told by people who were living in gorgeous apartments in Malibu or the Palisades or whatever so (laughs) you know they got paid very very well to be treated so badly and and in the in the scheme of things they're not like children mining uh, lithium from from the ground in in Sierra Leone or whatever I mean they're, they're, they're being treated <laughs> poorly on on a on a curve Do very you know I mean? relative yeah very very relative form of poverty when you saw like only so, three Ferraris yeah but but when you look back at some of those stories and you realize the pain that, mm. that those people have gone through I mean I yeah I have experienced that that pain on on my own sort of small level and when people make those I mean, one of the sad, sad things, I guess, was when I realised that William Shatner had aged out of the T.J. Hooker Jr. movie that I wrote for the creator of of T.J. Hooker, who basically hired me to write an A-Team, 21 Jump Street, whatever type reboot, but T.J. Hooker would be in it as, you know, played by William Shatner. Right. And, but his bumbling son... Would, would have just graduated from the police academy with as, as basically the, the sort of the shit Kennedy son, if you like. So his father right. was this incredible legend. And obviously, you know, played played with with tongue firmly in cheek by William Shatner, but played completely straight. And he would be the the sort of the bumbling idiot who, of course, comes good at the end. And oh man, when when I realised that actually that just was not possible for the simple reason that William Shatner had to be in it, and he could no longer get insured for action scenes because he passed the age of eighty, it was like, and it just was gone forever. And I I, I did really not that I had high hopes that it would get made, but just for nothing. To, to come of it for it never to appear in any form i mean that you know that 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 did hurt nothing that you could transform or in some way sort of nope make it into something else yeah exactly TV it had to have that <laughs> i mean not that you know i mean of all the ips that you could be given this wasn't the dream oh, you know what on. i mean tj hooker's pretty high up there it's, right, it's, it's i mean a little bit below manimal but you know. <laughs> But you know, I was happy to. I was happy Air to take it. Wolf. 
do Airwolf. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I, and I was excited. And just the idea that they they sort of, well, that one, yeah, it was, it was it, I know we're not really here to talk about screenwriting, but, but that was, I particularly cherished that one because it was one that I kind of, they didn't want me and I kind of fought for it and got it. Right. Right. You know, did so you that have was any meetings of, with Shatner? No, I did. I did, and I was meeting with uh, um, Rick Husky, who was the, the TJ Hooker guy, right. um, and uh, the producer who was actually going to sort of be the producer producer for the film who would actually i can't remember what his name was but um but who had actually done like big films and so you know you could you could sort of get this set up at, at whichever studio owned the rights which i think was was universal but um but um yeah so i mean there were a few experiences like that along the way and i and i it was quite indulgent of me to in the last in the second edition of, of tales from development hell i did add a chapter which which described my own sort of and and now if i if i do a third edition which uh, honestly i am about halfway halfway through a third edition at the moment um i wouldn't include that chapter now because i realize that other people's tales from development hell are much more interesting than than mine and and mine are actually fairly humdrum by comparison to these kind of giant movies that that never saw the light of day but will always fascinate in in the mind you know what about movies which have been have sort of been long delayed or long gestated to the point that the they look like they'll never turn up i'm thinking of terry gilliam's the man who who killed don quixote which i saw really recently I'd seen the La Mancha documentary, Lost in La Mancha, and I'd seen the He Dreams of Giants documentary. And I saw, I I actually quite liked it. It was weird. It was kind of a weird thought experiment trying to think, well, if I just watched this without any of that, how would I have felt towards it? I think I probably would have liked it as just a a better than average Terry Gilliam movie. That's, That's really interesting. And yet you can't. You know that you no. just can't divorce yourself from the from the from from all of that baggage that you kind of bring to it. In the same way that that sometimes you you can cast an actor because of what you what what the audience brings to you know they do so much and and when it's uh, th- that's why you know I guess casting against type is 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 kind of so interesting because like I don't know Robin Williams in One Hour Photo or whatever everything that the audience brings they're not being allowed to they're not allowed to to use you know so you, you've mm. got an extra level of so yeah i don't think you can ever get around that but then i think probably it's one of those cases where there is a perfect time to have made crusade and it was then and there was a perfect there was a there was a great planet of the apes reboot but i'm not sorry that they that they did the 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 mike reeve version because it was it, it was so good i don't know whether what many of the great things in the smoke and mirrors script would have been great beyond the the period in which it would have been made so there there are films like that that needed to be made in their time and i guess you know one of the disappointments is that the when the the moment passes and you know that that can't that that can't happen anymore all you really have is the things that never were and i i still find that really exciting and and you know if like i say if if i could find enough interesting projects to to make another sort of full volume of the book i definitely would because i feel like that's my that, that's where i'm most where i'm the happiest is exploring never never was and 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 things that kind of nearly made it but never quite never quite off the ground i think what one of the most soul crushing things is, is perhaps the fact that when guillermo del toro said he didn't make up the mountain mountains of madness because prometheus had basically done it. That was like, oh, because right. I would have so much rather had Guillermo del Toro's 
at the Mountains of Man is because, you know, the H.P. Lovecraft and Guillermo del Toro, and he'd been, felt like he'd been building up to a, an amazing H.P. Lovecraft movie and he had like tom cruise and you know all this incredible stuff it just could have been uh it could have been amazing and then for him just to say but thematically it's, it's been done now and then you have to wait like another mm. 10 years before you can sort of do that again and nobody will notice that it's quite a bit like prometheus and so it all kind of feeds on itself and i guess that's called john carter syndrome isn't it that, that by the time you actually get around to making the john carter movie the the corpse has been picked clean yeah like the lady said when she watched hamlet i liked it but it's full of quotes <laughs> i mean the thing about i love about lovecraft is i love the the setting the date you know i mean it's contemporary to lovecraft he's writing contemporary stuff for him but you know that 1920s you know sort of interwar period i just think is so atmospheric and great i, I guess the mummy sort of had a little bit of that sort of atmosphere the the sort of Brendan Fraser version. You know, I like Reanimate and From Beyond and all that schlock, but it's not it's not really HP Lovecraft, is it? Yeah, that's that's the problem. You kind of want and and there are other there have been other subsequent you know, but I think what you want is an absolutely set in the period pure true to the to the the, the spirit of the stories kind of a, a dunnage horror, which I guess they got mm. kind of a little bit close. I mean, Brian Usner and Stuart Gordon between them, they did have a really good crack at it, but they never quite got that the combination of the, the budget the atmosphere you you need a director to come along who who worships hp lovecraft and wants to do it in the same way that directors have come along and writers have come along who worship stephen king and want mm. to do stephen king right and i do believe that it will happen but it will probably be you know that will be in the in the sort of the late 2020s which will be 100 years after the stories were written and hopefully somebody will will come along with that kind of love as they did for for, for stephen king over the last kind of 10 years or so where we've seen these these not only these these amazing adaptations of stephen king's stories that have been done before but that sort of Poorly, but also the massive influence that Stephen King has had over things like Stranger Things and and you know other things that we see now that we know bear the the, the telltale sort of imprint of of his you know of his influence. I think they should have had Peter Jackson and Del Toro should have swapped films. I think Del Toro should have done The Hobbit like he was supposed to, <laughs> and Peter Jackson should, should have done should sorry should have done Mountains of Madness. Right. You know, it's like he did with King Kong. It was a sort of and he yeah. the background in horror and. Yeah, that's yeah, a really good that... good thought. You see, there's a whole book there on films that should have been that weren't even that weren't even mooted. But this would have been a good person to do that that project. Right. Let's <laughs> do swapsies. Yeah. Have made a good... I was thinking as well because living in this sort of never never land of projects that didn't quite make it off the ground or, or made it very close to, to the air but but didn't didn't ever get properly made there's always a price that there's always that invisible price so if if james cameron makes spider-man he doesn't make the film that he's then gonna make that's so true it sort of becomes a trade-off as well would you swap this for that would you swap total recall 2 for uh what did verhoeven do showgirls and basic instinct i guess uh yeah 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 i mean that's that's a really good thought i don't know why i've never thought about that but but um you've made a really good point yeah you have to give up something don't you in order to get 
the thing. And I think in a lot of cases, it probably wouldn't be worth losing. I mean, I, I, I definitely think that if Cameron had made Spider-Man, there, there wouldn't have really been any, uh, any reason to, for Sam Raimi to do it when he did it. Do you, do you know what I mean? So we'd have to yeah, sort yeah. of give up those things. And I know that not all of those films turned out super great, but th- there's enough kind of really good stuff in there to make you think that maybe the planet kind of did you know, maybe we, we do live in the best of all possible universes, even though we didn't get to see those films that, that we've kind of kind of discussed, you know, and waiting for the right Lord of the Rings to come along and the right person to do it and the right budget and the right... Sp- and, and I think, you know, one of the reasons why some of these things shouldn't have happened when they didn't is because special effects weren't ready. I mean, that's really what the, what the whole thing with waiting for Avatar, you know, for, for better or worse or, or what have you, the, the way that the Planet of the Apes films were done when they were done, you know, the, the reboot, they, they were so brilliant because they were able to get the characters to be the way they were. It was just, they had to be done in that time and, and wouldn't have, would have looked a bit rubbish if they were, if they were done when they were meant to be done. So that's, that's a very good point. It's not just the trade-off, it's all the fact that they probably would have been diminished by the fact that the special effects hadn't caught up to where they needed to be yet. Yeah, I think John Bowman's Lord of the Rings sounds... Yeah, I I'd be kind of terrified of that. I think it would be like a Zardos. Yeah. It would be a, a magnificent mess. And, yeah, um, yeah. Because all, all you'd really have would be would have been sort of costumes and maybe one fairly pricey special effect. You know, maybe you'd throw everything at, at, at one big effect because that's what those films kind of tended to do. You finger know? lightning and you know. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so we we were spared that. I mean, not that I would mind if 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 I heard that, that a bootleg of <laughs> had been found and it was coming out on Blu-ray, I would definitely get be be first to pre-order it, you know, with all its yeah, yeah. sort of crappy crappy bits. I mean, in a in a way as well, this this is also perhaps something about the physical media that me. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm guessing that we might be. You're probably a bit younger than me, but we're, we're at, probably around the same age. Um, so I'm guessing you grew up with your you're looking quizzical. You don't want me, you, you don't want me well, to Well, I, I, I came out the I'm, same I'm, year I'm, as... I came I'm out the same year as Planet of the Apes and and 2001: A Space Odyssey. I was born in in 1968, so I'm. Ah, oh, right. Okay. Reckon I'm, I'm a bit older than you. Yeah, yeah, you are. I uh, see. So you full? I assumed that I was the I was the the, the relic. But but what was the point that you were going to make anyway? <laughs> oh God knows. Uh, no, no, I remember. Yeah, <laughs> when you said there was a there's a bootleg about the the John Bullman Lord of the Rings, I, that feels like a throwback to when I used to watch dodgy a dodgy recording of Clockwork Orange on. Video Video cassette, which was yeah. obviously sort of filmed from a TV in Holland and <laughs> yeah. smuggled into the country. So there was this sort of sense that there were these sort of impossible movies hiding out there somewhere, which kind of doesn't exist anymore. I don't feel, I feel that I know about a movie well in advance of it appearing. The common complaints about the, the trailers showing too much and this, that and the other yeah. rampant speculation which which even if if fans don't know i mean i'm guilty of this myself i wrote an article about once upon a time in hollywood which basically guessed pretty accurately what was going to happen so <laughs> right. um, which i took I took, well, I took a bit of pleasure in it i guess but um you know what i mean it, it there's a the, the element of yeah the, the 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 space for that kind of mystery is is a little bit narrower than it than it was in the 80s and 70s i mean i remember walking into movies and just going what's this you know what's yeah Indiana definitely Jones and and or... 
you know the the um i mean yeah when i when i think back to kind of how i used to experience um a lot of you know movies and tv it was basically because you couldn't you couldn't like afford to go to the movies as often as you wanted to and you had no home video and the films that were on tv you had to wait 5 years to see basically the the ways that we re-experienced films were like novelizations if you were very lucky photo novelizations which oh, were basically really, like I really frames wanted to of the film I want to do an episode on novelizations. <laughs> I really want to do. Uh, I mean, they're just crazy. I, I Philip Kaufman sent me the the photo novelization of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, and it's it's after I interviewed him as as kind of a thank you. It's an ama amazing thing, and it was like a, a such an amazing relic from a bygone age because I had forgotten that they existed. But then I remembered that years ago that is that was my video that or a cassette recorder taping Tom Baker Doctor Who off the TV so I could listen back to it later or whatever. That was the the only way that you could sort of re-experience things and then of course you know if you could get hold of film magazines that would go a bit deeper like if you were lucky enough to be able to get a cine fantastique or, or or something like that then you could really take a deep dive behind the movies of course that would be the equivalent now of just kind of re-watching it on dvd but to your point about whether or not it's possible to find hidden movies i think it is but what we what, what you'd have to uncover now is a script that you didn't know had been written for a film that didn't get made and that's where i think that that may be a a, a scene that hasn't been fully mined because there are quite a few like like we, we were talking about like the filmmakers who were offered like a, a to write their take on a batman film or something those things are kind of it can be dug up you know and and these scripts do surface from time to time and, and occasionally you'll see oh here's the original the guy who, who who wrote the original draft of the truman show when it was set in new york and sort of didn't have the comedic elements they that come naturally with a, putting jim carrey in it and it wasn't the peter weir version of it it was and and andrew i can't remember his name but andrew nick um, Andrew Nichols hated the film that they made and would love to have his version of that out there. And I think as we've seen with like the audio dramatization of Alien 3, one, one of the Alien 3, um, William Gibson's version, I, I, I think, yeah. got made as an audio drama. And I think we've, we've seen a couple of unmade films turn up as like graphic novels or whatever. If there's money in it, I think the studios will start to mine that catalogue of stuff and, and realise that they've got content here. It's not like old pilots where you've got a big problem because you, you'd have to pay the SAG fees to all the actors if you were going to release the Tremors pilot or whatever you, you couldn't really do that because um, it, it, the juice wouldn't be worth the squeeze because you've got to pay everybody their SAG fees going to make a reference to the, uh, the is it david lynch a razorhead where jack nance goes through a door four years later he actually enters the room this is our tribute to that and that's good because the question that i wanted to ask you before we were interrupted was actually a david lynch one because you've also written a book on david lynch and i thought one of my fantasy unmade films would be the david lynch is it uh, uh is it Robbie Rockets or, or... Ronnie Rocket? Ronnie Rocket, yes. Um, so I wanted yeah. you to, to talk about that a little bit. Uh, well, as you may know, all attempts to synopsize David Lynch's script for Ronnie Rocket have ended in madness and death. So, um, so I can't really be sure that I could tell you accurately what it's about. And even when I interviewed um, 
uh, one of the guys who was who was supposed to be in it back in, I guess, the late 70s, but when, when it was kind of first mooted, uh, was Dexter Fletcher. And he couldn't really remember, except that it was about a, a little guy with a shock of red hair who'd been experimented on and had to plug himself into the wall every 15 minutes to kind of recharge. And he ends up joining a <laughs> band, like it would have been a punk band, I guess, and becoming sort of a sensation. But then some terrible men in dark suits called the donut men I, I can't say any more because otherwise i risk as i say madness and uh, catastrophe but um it's pretty bad and and pretty mad sorry uh, that was Freudian. <laughs> um, <laughs> i don't know i don't know if it would be on my my wish list for you know if i turned up in an alternative universe uh, one day i don't think the first question I'd, I'd ask is do you have ronnie rocket here did, did they really ever make but bless you for for thinking that it was uh, that it was makeable i think um uh, possibly the closest thing that we actually have in this universe to it may be Alex Proyas's Dark City combined with some of the, the, the little person parts of Twin Peaks. Mm. That feels like the right kind of vibe. And I think, you know, even though David Lynch was, was talking about um, Dexter Fletcher being Ronnie Rocket, I think really and truly once he met, I, I can't remember the name of the actor who, who played the little person in, in Twin Peaks, but once he'd met that actor, I think it, there was only one person for him who could have played him. But I just... You know, I think it's one of those things where Lynch kind of moved on quite fast. You know, he went from kind of the Elephant Man to, to Dune. And I don't think there was any really serious intention to make that as his next film at any time, except after Eraserhead. Because I think he he just, you know, his his artistry as a filmmaker had started to develop beyond his artistry as an artist. And I think that took him into some fairly interesting places. By the time you got to 1986, he was doing Blue Velvet. And, and for me, there was sort of, there, there was no way back. And then, of course, you know, when he, 30 years later, when he was doing his kind of experimental films, that's when you got to, he got back to a place where he was doing things like, uh, that were a little bit more in that Ronnie Rocket zone again, some of the sort of post-Inland Empire at web stuff. and Yeah, with the bunny rabbits and the, yeah, that kind of stuff. Yeah, exactly. It was that kind of wildly surreal stuff, you know. Michael J. Anderson's the name of the guy. I just googled it. Yes, I'm not going to claim. You. I'm not going to claim any <laughs> any knowledge. Um, <laughs> but they had a huge falling out, I think, or at least Michael J. Anderson sort of posted loads of things on Facebook about David Lynch. Well, accusations of uh, child murder and stuff like that. Really quite extreme stuff. Oh wow. Yeah. So because I I'm not sure if he was just disappointed that he wasn't being cast in. Twin Peaks The Return or or if there was something deeper there but the yeah there was a there was definitely a, a heated exchange from the part of Michael Anderson I don't I don't remember reading any reply from David Lynch. Yikes. Oh, I'll have to look into that. One of the things about spending like, you know, a year doing a book like um, the, the the Lynch book or the, or the Kubrick book is that I tend to sort of jettison all, not interest in, but, but I don't tend to look any, any further behind the scenes of those. Because you imagine when you're spending a year on, on one topic, I'm, uh, as, uh, as you may know, it kind of tends to be, a, it, it's so completely dominating that you almost can't 
look at a, I couldn't look at a Lynch film again for another sort of 10 years. You know, weirdly, because you've just kind of saturated yourself in it completely, which is, is a perfect way to ruin something for yourself is to kind of write a book about it. But then you sort of slowly come back around. But then I, I, I wouldn't necessarily want to go back behind the scenes. But one thing I do remember is that because my, you know, the, having those twin obsessions of David Lynch and films that never got made, when I got to interview Lynch for the book, which was um, which happened in Prague in in person while he was mixing Mulholland Drive. It had basically taken me about six months to get the interview, and I finally got it because his I, because his assistant called and said, oh, "I'm really sorry, David's not going to be able to do the interview because he's going to be in Europe, like while while he's doing sort of post production on Mulholland Drive." And I was like, "Well, I'm in Europe," and and she sort of couldn't think of how to get out of it <laughs> so i just i i got on a i got on a, a plane to to prague and he arrived and basically i thought um so i was interviewing him the next day and i thought shall i have a night out in prague or shall i like do my job properly and stay up really late at night uh, writing questions for the interview that i'm gonna do at like you know three o'clock in the afternoon tomorrow and i thought mm. oh you know what i better do my better do my questions so i did my questions the night before and obviously i had waited six months so i had every single thing this was about a week away from the book's deadline i had every single thing i wanted to ask him including about all these unmade projects and then he woke me up up the next morning and yeah. said uh, hi is that david this is david <laughs> Uh, I'm downstairs. We have to do the interview now because I'm a smoker, see? And I was like, well, what is happening? I've been woken up by this mad, shouty Gordon Cole character who's saying, come downstairs. We've got to do the interview now because he's a smoker. I never figured that out. So I go down to, to you know, the, the breakfast canteen or whatever. He's sitting there with Angelina, Angel, um, Angelo Badalamenti, who, who's sipping coffee in that very intimidating <laughs> Mulholland Drive kind of way that, that wasn't even a reference yet because yeah. I hadn't seen Mulholland Drive. Anyway, and I just basically dumped over the next couple of hours, I, I, I dumped questions on him uh, about all these unmade things. I said, um, like, so what was the deal with that film that you were going to make with Neil Gaiman called Up at the Lake? And he would be like, uh, uh, you know, uh, I don't really remember. And then I said, well, um, uh, luckily I interviewed Neil Gaiman and I asked him about it and here's what he said so i kind of wouldn't let him off the hook because i knew that he was just gonna like flim flam me and say yeah that was never really a thing but i had everything everything ready to go so i think it's somewhere in the back of the of the um of the complete lynch you know now sadly long out of print but may still be available as, a, as an ebook that there's a big and perhaps definitive list of all those films that lynch didn't get to make because i made sure i had them all ready to ready to go when i finally sat down with him that's uh, that's an amazing congratulations on your david lynch impersonation which is perfect i'd have to say absolutely <laughs> perfect i must you have to if you patreon me i i will sing uh, macarthur park in the style of uh, <laughs> of spoken word david lynch have you, have you um <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. have you uh, i listened to his autobiography um room to dream uh, last year and it's it's oh, fantastic it's re i really would advise people to actually listen to the audiobook because it has chapters by uh, his biographer essentially which are fairly straight biography and then there's chapters which he just basically covers the same period but with anecdotes and stuff and it's just hilarious i mean there's a bit where he's talking about school and you can tell he goes off script because he sort of goes oh uh, when i went to school 
God, it was a fucking waste of time. It was a fucking waste of my time. He can, he's still angry. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Complete waste of is my it, time. So he's angry and which is the because he's shouty at the best of times. So so angry and shouty. I imagine that that's quite a treat. Yeah, and it's sort of shoutiness, but without yeah, without sort of nastiness to it. Weirdly, I actually did visit his school uh, or, or well, the art school that he went to in in Philadelphia. Just because uh, while I was working on the book by Quinson's, I was in Philadelphia for for work, which was handy. Um, so I went to his kind of alma mater. But I I don't know if he's referring to his kind of small town school in Spokane, Washington, or whether he actually didn't get much. Out out of art school but i i would you know i would challenge that theory because i think he i think i think um he he probably did although you know artists do tend to sort of outgrow their their schooling because you have to kind of strip away the establishment idea of what an artist is supposed to be and I'm, I'm pretty sure it was the more conventional sort of school yeah. that he went to rather than the i think it was just the practice of sitting you know i mean sometimes schooling is is more about teach and i say this as someone who's taught um, is teaching children how to be bored you know, in a quiet way, right? And, and yeah. I think there's and also you can't smoke. Which would, yeah, you know, I'm a know, smoker. A massive <laughs> I'm gonna, see, I'm trying mine out now. <laughs> that wasn't bad. Not bad. Not bad. Yeah, no, the smoker thing. I, I, I eventually figured out it was because. For some reason, it meant he'd arrived by train overnight from from Paris to Prague because you could no longer smoke on the plane. Right. And he used to only fly Air France because you could still smoke on Air France flights, like right up to the to the kind of mid nineteen nineties or something. But then they'd even kind of stamped that out on Air France flights. So so he'd arrived earlier than expected. Otherwise, that would have been one of those great David Lynch mysteries. Why have we got to do the interview now? Because I'm a smoker. Okay, so <laughs> like his films, it makes sense in the end. It all makes sense in some sort of yes, way. Yes, ab absolutely. So you're going to ask me for a book recommendation, aren't you? That's right. Yes. Um, I have to say I've been mostly reading or rather listening to because like the the, the Lynch memoir you mentioned, um, which I haven't listened to yet, but I'll get right on that. I've been enjoying the memoir by Gabriel Byrne which is kind of part life memoir and, you know, it's kind of salted with. But again, you know, if you're not listening to that so that you hear it read in Gabriel Byrne's kind of mellifluous, you know, um, Irish brogue, then uh, you haven't really experienced that book as it, as it should be experienced. And, and I'd say that most of the books that I've been reading lately, most of the film books I've been reading have been on the memoir or, or biography side of things. I've really enjoyed Mark Harris's biography of uh, the filmmaker. Mike Nichols. I've forgotten his name. Mike Nichols, yes. And the biography of Robin Williams. Mm. Um, but I think the, the, the book that I've enjoyed the most this year is probably Helen O'Hara's uh, Women versus Hollywood. And I think you've probably, you, you've spoken to her for an episode of yep. your your podcast I, I i would think i i really that was really fantastic because i think it, it opened up such a rich kind of steam of the the early decades of women in hollywood and the you know horrific things some of the them went through in that period and i felt that she just kind of lifted the veil on that stuff and i really wa wanted to find out more because it was stuff that i had no idea had kind of gone on and I found that completely fascinating but I also wanted to give a shout out to the book which got me into screenwriting because I because that was a very important book even though it's not a sort of film book per se but the book 
three screenplays by Richard Price was basically after I'd read like a bunch of screenwriting books and, and found that it hadn't really kind of helped me actually get started. That book was so liberating because I was about two thirds of the way through it when I thought, I think I know how to do this now. Mm. And basically he'd kind of just by, by, by the, the ease that how easy he made it look and by the way that he just kind of formatted for readability and everything, it, it kind of demystified the, the screenplay. And I, you know, that's probably not that easy to find these days, but I really recommend reading, you know, if you can track down those books of screenplays, I've found them over the last kind of 30 years to be so much more helpful than books about screenwriting. So, you know, even if you have to read the, 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 the kind of classic screenwriting books, I would urge you to read scripts published officially or otherwise, because that really is the best insight into not only, you know, how to format scripts and, you know, how the greats kind of write screenplays, but also um, what's happening in screenwriting now. You know, mm. when you read a, a, a modern screenplay, you'll be amazed at how much things have changed over the past five years and 10 years and that there's a new kind of language of screenplays that that is right for now. And we're still kind of taking advice from, you know, people who are writing their screenplay books 25 and 30 years ago. And, uh, you know, things move on pretty fast. So anyway, sorry, you were, you were looking for one recommendation, but I just wanted to kind of blurt out a bunch of things that I've liked lately. Most of the most people so far have given multiple answers for that for that question and i'm perfectly happy because because ultimately it's what it's about it's about people who are listening uh getting recommendations jotting them down and going out and searching so the more the merrier really i and i would second the helen o'hara book uh, women versus hollywood i'd also second the gabriel byrne book which i also listened to in an audiobook you know what why why wouldn't you i mean it's gabriel byrne it's like uh one of the most beautiful voices since richard burton you know in uh yeah, absolutely. I just found out today that Matthew McConaughey, even though it's published in October, that, that Matthew McConaughey has narrated the audio book yes. of his of his memoir. So I've just got that, and uh, and that will be my next listen after the after the Lynch one. So um, yeah, there's plenty plenty more going on there. It is a really daft book. <laughs> it's a really really. <laughs> I can't wait. I know. I mean, absolutely it, can't wait. It, it's it it lives <laughs> up to your expectation of how how he. I think he. he includes something this isn't a spoiler but he includes something in the book and again i listened to the audio version which are like sort of moments of matthew mcconaughey zen where he goes oh uh, is he oh he's a green light because it's the title of the book um yeah and he sort of just has these moments where he goes green light you know <laughs> always remember <laughs> don't smoke cigarettes or they smoke you well some some jibble jabble stuff you know it's just it's just lunacy nice. but very amusing lunacy um and oh it sounds super fun absolutely well listen david thanks so much for your time it's been really great talking to you you too yeah thanks for having me it's uh, and i'm looking forward to listening to more episodes So that was my conversation with David Hughes. Hope you enjoyed it. We had a great, great discussion also about screenplays and his book recommendations, which I heartily concur with. Uh, the screenplays of Richard Price, Mike Nichols' biography by Mark Harris, and Helen O'Hara, 
friend of the podcast, her book, Women vs. Hollywood. Thank you very much for listening. Please remember to follow me on Twitter at Dr. Jonty, D-R-J-O-N-T-Y. Thanks very much to uh, Elliot Atkins uh, for the music and Ali Harwood for helping out with the art. I will talk to you. I will uh, see you. I w- oh, fuck it. Next week. Take care. you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.